Hello, my beautiful and lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so, so excited to welcome Savannah Johnston to read from her new story collection, Rights, and be, and also her co- be in conversation with Addie Sai. But before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is now open for in-store browsing. Uh, but please, please, please follow the CDC mask mandate, bring your masks, please, uh, Please keep your distance from other customers. You just want to make sure both our staff and other customers are safe as possible. You can always shop online as well, 24-7 at www.skylightbooks.com, and we offer shipping and in-store pickup. Savannah Johnson is an enrolled citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. Her work has appeared in Gulf Coast, HTML Giant, and Gravel, among others. She lives in New York City. Addie Sai is a queer non-binary artist and writer of color. They collaborated with Dominic Walsh Dance Theater on Victor Frankenstein and Camille Claudel, among others. Addie holds an MFA from Warren Wilson College and a PhD in dance from Texas Women's University. They're the author of the queer Asian young adult novel, Dear Twin. Unwieldy Creatures, their adult queer biracial retelling of Frankenstein is forthcoming from Jaded Avis Press. They are the fiction co-editor at Anomaly, staff writer at Spectrum South, and founding editor and editor-in-chief at Just Feminine Dandy. Savannah and Addie, I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I hope I, I, hope I did a good job introducing you guys and didn't mess up too many things. Um, no, I'm just so excited to have you both on today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's the energy. That's the fun energy. Uh, all our listeners, that's just know we're all have excited faces on. Um, all right, Savannah, I, you have a reading for us today that I'm so excited to hear. Uh, yeah, I'll be reading the first section of uh, one of the stories from the collection. It's called Revolutions. <clears throat> oh, yes. The summer I turned nine was the year my mother decided that I could be trusted to handle myself in public. In truth, she had let me run the empty streets of our neighborhood since I started school, but in public, she always made a show of keeping her hands on my narrow shoulders, steering me like a buggy through the grocery store. I had already explored the swampy frog pond that separated our part of town from the country, the abandoned mill with its rusty hollow silos and the old chicken hut across the railroad tracks. If she knew where I'd been, she didn't ask, though she asked me a few times to try and keep my knees clean. When the free fair and carnival came around in early August, I was anxious to try out my new freedom. The fair wasn't free, like its name suggested, and it was no powwow, but the lights and the rides and games would run all weekend long. Every year, my mother would herd me from kitty ride to kitty ride while she gossiped with one of her friends, whistling through her teeth if she thought I'd wandered too far off. The kitty rides were always a disappointment, a half-painted spinning bear whose red and white suspenders were pink and green from the sun, a clacking train ride that boasted a five-foot peak and had a penchant for getting stuck at the top, and a swing ride, which I never rode after that time in first grade when Violet Shangro got clutched the crotch buckle and slid right out of the swing just as the machine hit full velocity. She only broke an ankle in her left wrist, but that was enough to scare me off the swing ride for good. That year, I had a growth spurt and was finally tall enough to ride the green machine, the only ride that wasn't torn down and stored away over the winter. It ran on a converted John Deere tractor engine 
and it had two egg-shaped capsules at the ends of welded steel arms that swung up and around like I imagined David's slingshot from the Bible story. It was exhilarating to watch. Some pimple-faced farm boy would kick the motor on and the dusty black belts would rumble and begin to whir so fast as to appear still before the arms began to sway. Shanice, my best friend when she happened to be staying with her grandmother, which was often, already made me a pinky promise that we would ride the machine together. We went to the fair on the second night, Saturday. I asked my mother's boyfriend, who I called Uncle Pablo, to tie my hair up in a tight bun at the top of my head, and he used one of his red bandanas to hold my hair back from my forehead. In school, we learned about the textile factories from far away New York and Boston, and how the people who worked there would get their hair sucked into their machine's gears and pulled out from the roof. I imagined the whirring, swinging parts of the green machine catching my waist-like hair and taking my scalp with it, or worse, more. Uncle Pablo laughed at me when I told him that, but he tied his bandana around my head just the same. <clears throat> As we walked the quarter mile from our little A-frame in the old part of town, my mother and Uncle Pablo leaning on one another as they went, I ran a few steps ahead. Once we hit those fairgrounds, I'd be home free. I planned how to spend my $5 worth of tickets. The Tilt-A-Whirl first, I thought, then the spider ride with its middle painted like the Black Widow's belly. And then for three tickets, the green machine, or maybe the Ferris wheel instead of the Tilt-A-Whirl, but I knew Shanice would say that the Ferris wheel was for babies. My mother whistled for me to slow up as a line of white vans drove past. I stopped and watched, taking a step back into the grassy ditch. There were five of them, mostly identical, but for a few differences in gear or wear and tear. Tall white bands, the ones you see at churches. The orange street lamp shone dimly through the dark windows, revealing silhouettes of broad-brimmed hats in one band and square bonnets in the next. I was used to seeing the Mennonites around the fair every year, but their presence, all of them dressed so alike, always startled me at first. They weren't like the other white people in Caddo County. They didn't just ignore the rest of us. It was more like they pretended we didn't exist. They kept to themselves on their dairy farms, owned their cows and the land outright, drove their own milk tankers, and seemed to prefer to have as little to do with the rest of us as possible. My mother said that was because of their religion, but Uncle Pablo said it was because they didn't like Indians. Thinking of the girls' milk-white hair caps, how the caps came just over their ears, I touched my own ears, sticking out from beneath Uncle Pablo's bandana. They felt hot. Oh, Maddie, we can't hear you. Oh, do I just didn't know we went right into it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, no, no. I wasn't sure if Lance goes in between, but um, okay. I'm really glad you read from that story because I was actually thinking that um, that's actually one of my favorite stories in the book. I just really love it. Um, so I thought we could start, if you would, humor me and humor our listeners and just give us your elevator pitch of the book so listeners have an idea of what we'll be discussing and um, maybe a little bit about the history of the book and how, how you would describe its evolution from your first draft to the form it's in now um, in book form. Well, it's much better than the first draft. We'll start with that. Um, but... I would say my elevator pitch is you definitely have to enjoy short fiction. Uh, most of the stories are fairly short. They're not novellas. Uh, this collection has 11 stories that I wrote over the course of about five years. Um, and the stories really focus on 
the areas in and around the reservations in Oklahoma and focusing on the lives of uh, both indigenous and mixed indigenous people there. And the collection largely takes place in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, which was a time of a lot of change in that state. Uh, I feel like when people think of the 80s, they think of New York and Wall Street and cocaine. That was not what was happening in Oklahoma at that time. Um, it's a, it's, it can be a very hard place, but at the same time, I think my collection really explores uh, the beauty under that. Um, and the lives of these people, they're complicated, they're hard, but everyone kind of just understands that you have to persevere. And I think that is a very large theme in the book. This is a story about people who are resisting merely by existing. And that kind of resiliency, I think, is a big part of what makes these stories so good. And I don't say that to brag, uh, but it did start as me just kind of exploring a way of telling stories from my own community and kind of processing how the people around you really shape you and how every single action you make, of course, we know this, it's science, there's a reaction. But when you think about how indigenous communities work together and how, especially in Oklahoma, indigenous communities live alongside so many other diverse groups that it really becomes this, it's like a series of fault lines and everything is overlapping. And I really wanted to explore that because it wasn't something I'd seen in fiction very much. It seemed like we had the one story of indigenous America and it was written by Sherman Alexie in 1994. And that's a very specific experience. Um, so with my fiction, I wanted to kind of explore the lives and the stories of many different kinds of people and how we all struggle and kind of just go through what makes each of us unique, but also what brings us together as a community, whether that's the trauma or the joy, or just, you know, that neutral middle ground. Yeah, actually, I, I'm realizing just this, just as we're talking about it, um, that it really reminded me of the collection Lot. I don't know if you've read that by Brian Washington, but um, yeah, I think you might find it interesting because all of the, so the entire collection is set in Houston and he actually had to really battle, um, you know, the publisher. He, from what he um, explained at a reading I went to, there were like a number of times that, that he didn't go through because they didn't want a book that was set in Houston. So I really love this. I also just love this idea of kind of fighting against these, um, these very like stereotypical places that we just see set, you know, stories set in or novels set in over and over again, um, especially in the time period that you're talking about. Um, okay, so although I know the stories aren't linked in the traditional way that stories are linked, um, I definitely get a sense that these stories are connected by a common world, like you were like you were getting into a little bit. And I, I, I would get really excited actually when, um, the subject of a previous story would be mentioned or a character that wasn't as central central in one story, but I had already sort of experienced in a previous story in the collection would happen. So um, I was wondering if you could speak more to the way that you connected these stories either by place or, you know, in, in those ways that characters came sort of in and out of different, different stories in the collection. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to speak to that. I decided that I wanted them to be linked 
largely by place, as you said. And so like mentioning specific locales uh, was part of it. And then occasionally, I mean, again, as you said, somebody will pop up in the background. It's like, oh, this person is here, but then that's the subject of a story 50 pages later. And the reason why I did that was because it is really a book about community. Like every person in this book is dealing with their own demons. And when we're experiencing things like that, I mean, I feel, I say we, but let's just say that's the royal we. Um, it can feel like that's the whole world because I mean, as people, our individual worlds revolve around ourselves. But I wanted to kind of explore this community where everyone is so focused on their own issues or their own problems, but at the same time, like there's someone in the background or like say I mentioned the office a couple of times, uh, which is a roadhouse. And those characters who are in the roadhouse in their own stories, they are fully focused on their own selves. But in the background, there's Tommy from a different story and he's just having a beer after work. But at the same time, like these people are in each other's lives, but they're not necessarily active participants. And the reason why I decided to do that was because that's how I really see like my experience of living in my own community. And it's just like a very diverse group of people uh, ethnically who everybody's going through it. And at the end of the day, like, yeah, you can high five your friends, but you don't really know what they're going through either. And I kind of wanted to speak to that in this sense of, it kind of sounds silly, but like this sense of group experience, but at the same time, like that uniquely individual isolation that you can experience. And I, and I feel like, especially in smaller communities, like especially rural, small, not necessarily like, not necessarily small towns, even mid-sized towns, you experience this everywhere. Um, and I think I felt this really acutely when I moved to New York was you're surrounded by 8 million people and like you feel so alone at the same time because everyone is just passing you by. And I don't think that's unique to big cities. It happens everywhere. But at the same time, like if I were to get hurt on the street, I know for a fact neighbors who I don't know their names would come out and help me. And I think that's beautiful that at the same time where we can go through our own lives and explore our own traumas and our own like happiness. But if something happens, like we can come together. And I think that's a common human thing, but I definitely wanted to emphasize that as a part of the indigenous community in Oklahoma. Because everybody knows everybody, but everybody also knows how to mind business. <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting, especially when, um, you know, a story that has like maybe a, a particularly like complicated situation in a pastory is sort of just hanging out the roadhouse or um, referenced in dialogue. It, it really gives you that sense of like intimacy and um, not insularity, but but there's definitely like a, a sort of closed in feeling I get about it versus, you know, maybe like a bigger city situation. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so I definitely want to talk to you about dark humor. Um, there are definitely some, um, you know, I'm always really impressed with people that can be funny in creative writing, in any sort of creative writing. Um, it's not something that I can do um, at all. And, and I was really interested in how you were able to work with these so, some points, um, you know, pretty dark themes, but there was still like a, a sense of like lightness and comedy at the same time. And um, I was just wondering 
you know, what was the process of working with humor in this collection and what does dark comedy mean to you in the context of the book? Yeah, well, I mean, the process was, uh, and I don't say this to brag, that's kind of just how my brain works. Um, we all have our problems, but one of the ways that I was always taught to cope with adversity, with trauma, with a bad mood was you have to make a joke about it. Like one thing my dad used to tell me was he was like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And he was one of the funniest bastards I've ever met. And like, that's really part of it. And I don't think that's unique to like my father. I think it's really a big part of indigenous comedy is that there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of generational trauma. And a lot of people are only just now processing that. Like I didn't know the phrase generational trauma until I was an adult, but I learned it from an Indian comedian. <laughs> and I think that's really a big part of it is there's so much darkness, but if you wanna keep going, if you don't wanna let your light go out, like the best thing you can do is make a joke about it. And for this story collection, I don't think I could make a collection like this without having it, at least in my opinion, be a little bit funny because like the things that happen in the world in general, like it's just so absurd. I mean, it's 2021, you know, I don't have to explain to you. It's just silly. And if we're not willing to laugh about it, I think the weight of that would break us. And I mean, I say that as a person in general, not just as an indigenous person, that the weight of what is going on, like it's incredibly depressing. And if you want to continue to exist as a person, you need to be able to make a joke of it. And I don't say that to diminish like the weight of it at all. It's just, that's one way of coping. And that's one thing that I think is really prominent in indigenous communities. And so for the book, when I'm writing about this and I'm writing about admittedly uh, characters who are going through it, then I think the only way to sort of soften that blow and accurately show how it is, is to give it a little bit of humor because this shit's ridiculous. And if we're all gonna make it to the next day, then we just have to have a sense of humor about it. And dark humor is, dark humor is definitely that. Like I've always been attracted to dark humor and I do credit my family for that because that's how we go through it, you know? I hope that answers your question. Yeah, actually I wanted to ask another question about that. So are there writers that you really turn to that you enjoy that you think do this really well? I mean, I'm gonna be honest with you and say that like when I was younger, literally the first indigenous writers I read were in Scott Mamaday and Sherman Alexie. And I know he's persona non grata now, but I do think he's incredibly funny. And with this new wave of writers, like they're also incredibly funny. Uh, Therese Melhope, Brendan Monson, Erica Worth, like they've all made me laugh out loud at moments in their books. And some of the stuff is pretty dark, but they managed to make it where it's, I don't wanna say palatable, but it's processable where you're not questioning it. It's not, it's not like an off color joke where somebody's watching it and just goes huh! like, oh my God, you just said that. Like it's, more just understanding like the thought process behind it. Um, Teresa is incredibly funny in real life also. Like she's just smart, funny, and she's such a talented writer that I'm really looking forward to seeing more of her work, seeing if she really delves into it. Um, but yeah, like 
humor writing in itself has always been kind of a weird thing. Like, I mean, I would say there are definitely moments in Stephen King books that are funny. And even if he doesn't mean it to be. <laughs> but like so taking yourself too seriously, I think isn't something that I particularly like enjoy in fiction. Like, I mean, I have no shame in this, but like Riverdale is my favorite show because it's so <laughs> absurd. Like, it's like, yeah. it's like heroin and murder, but also <laughs> listen to the way Cheryl Blossom talks. Like it's hilarious. And it's so funny, like multiple instances of Archie just being like the epic highs and lows of high school football. And it's like, you just broke out of a prison, my guy. Like what's going on here? And I think that level of absurdity, just like taking these really dark themes and then injecting something funny in them is it's delightful. And for me, at least, I think it helps me, not TV, not Riverdale, but in general, that process helps me kind of explore the ideas that I want to in fiction that otherwise might be cast as just like depression or or just like oh this is just too dark this is too sad uh, nothing good happens and everyone dies at the end and it's like well we do all die at the end but we can have fun before <laughs> that happens yeah it actually reminds me of like when I <laughs> When I was first in therapy and I was like talking about all my trauma, I was like constantly laughing. And my yeah. therapist was like, what is this? What's going on? I'm like, surviving? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surviving and thriving. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, Cheryl, Cheryl Blossom just at any moment in that entire show is. Oh my God. Yes. The, the best. Yeah. Um, yeah. So good. Well, since we're already talking about television, we might as well get into representation. Um, yes. So as I was reading the book, you know, it, I was thinking about, you know, particularly the current conversation, I think that's happening around indigenous representation in literature, but especially in media, um, you know, certainly reservoir do reservation dogs came to mind as well. Um, can can you speak to how you see this book fitting into the um, landscape of indigenous representation, but also, you know, what are your hopes for um, indigenous representation going forward, not just within your work, but also just in terms of the lit industry and, you know, popular culture and media? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Reservation Dogs is incredible. Um, the team that's making it, I mean, Taika Waititi, whoo, oh my, like he's great. Anyway, we knew that. And he's not uh, indigenous to the United States, obviously, but Sterling Harjo, he's from a town very much like the one I grew up in, which is the one that features in Reservation Dogs. They never name it, but it's actually kind of funny that uh, there are a couple references to O'Kern. O'Kern is a town in Northeast Oklahoma that used to belong, I'm blanking right now on their name. Um, I want to say Shawnee, but uh, it's basically it's a it's a trust uh, a trust fund site, bleh, a super fun site now because uh, they mined something there that they just left these mountains there. It's it's not a mountainous area, but it's mountains of toxic waste, and they took it away from the tribe when they found that there, and then they mined it, and so now it's just a ghost town. And if you notice throughout the series, they never say what tribe. Uh, the characters are members of and they never say what town they're in but O'Kern is just it's such a site of indigenous displacement that I find it really interesting that they managed to write that in um, and it's I think it is really great to see those lives on screen and it's not being done in a way 
to glorify colonization. There's no white savior. Um, and it's also not poverty porn where it's just like focusing on the trauma and the displacement. And that's really, really exciting. I mean, I would also say like Rutherford Falls, another comedy that came out earlier this year on uh, Peacock, I believe, um, that has, I believe she's the first indigenous showrunner, um, but like only a month ahead of Sterling. And uh, that show focuses on a bunch of issues that are really coming up today in Oklahoma with the McGirt Supreme Court decision saying that Oklahoma violated tribal jurisdiction, jurisdiction for 120 years because our, our reservations were never dissolved. Um, and that's an ongoing legal battle, but Rutherford Falls is all about land back. And you've got Michael Gray Eyes, who not only does he star in Rutherford Falls, he's starring in Wild Indian, which is, is premiering this week at, I believe, TIFF. And then there's also, uh, he was in Blood Quantum, Jeff Barnaby, who is Micmac, his uh, zombie film, which is just a metaphor for colonization. And like, he's crushing it. And I would love to see more indigenous actors, indigenous writers, any kind of indigenous media personality. Uh, like Canada has uh, Aboriginal People's Television Network. I wish we had that here in the US. Uh, though they make incredible shows there. Like Mohawk Girls is like the OG excellent soap opera and it takes place obviously in the Mohawk Nation and I would say that it's really exciting to see all of it it's I feel like it's just it's taken too long and that's bad but we're here now and I really want to see it out there um and I say this not just for indigenous people but for all non-white people like we've been here and I'm not sure if this is technically true, but I believe we're the majority now. And so it shouldn't be just that it has to be blue-eyed, blonde-haired people on television telling these stories. Like we have our own stories and we can write them. Like it's not reasonable to think that 99% of media has to be based on like white European American culture and middle-class and above culture. Like, there's more of us, there are more stories to tell and it's just more interesting. Like how many shows have been canceled by being compared or, and books even that don't get published just because it's like, oh, well, this is just another version of this. Like we can't, I used to work in publishing and a lot of times it would be like, oh, well, we don't want to buy this book because we've already heard the story so many times. And that's not really fair that those are the only stories we're being given. It's There's more than one story. There are millions of stories. There's a there's 7 billion stories and everyone has its own validity and a right to be presented if those people are born, obviously but I think it's really exciting to see what's happening and I'm really excited to see what continues to happen and I hope that we can continue to diversify media and the literary landscape in general and also hopefully behind the scenes too like that's really where I think the change is slower to happen because of like the obvious power entrenched in those institutions, the studios, publishing houses. I mean, Harvey Weinstein made all of the movies that won Oscars for 30 years and he's an absolute dirtbag, but he's a powerful white man and it's really hard to get rid of them. But eventually we will. And hopefully the people coming up 
realize the importance of this and telling these stories. Like, it doesn't have to be like, oh, that's a black movie or, oh, that's an Asian movie. That's, that's a book for black women. Oh, that's a book for Mexican-Americans. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. Like, part of developing empathy, at least as I understand it, is reading other people's stories, viewing other people's stories. And if you're getting the same kinds of people and the same stories over and over again, you're not really developing an understanding of the world at large. And that's, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot because you're not going to be running in, you're not going to be dealing with the same kinds of people your entire life. Like that's a myopic worldview and it's not, in my opinion, healthy. What was I gonna, was it, was it hard for you to get this book picked up? This book kind of serendipitously got picked up, to be honest. Um, it's a unique story in that my friend knows the publisher and I had been rejected so many times that I was like, you know what, maybe my short story collection just won't sell and I should start focusing on a novel or maybe I should get into screenwriting, but clearly this isn't working. And unbeknownst to me, uh, this editor, or not editor, this publisher was complaining that they didn't have a book for the next cycle. And my friend who knew them was like, I've got a book for you, here you go. And it just happened from there. And I feel incredibly lucky to have made both of those connections, incredibly supportive. And it just kind of came out of the blue. Like I had given up on this book. And now I'm really glad that my friend thought of me because otherwise I wouldn't be here. And it's just so incredibly lucky that it happened. Like, I don't consider myself a lucky person. There are some things that have happened like getting into the university that I went to that I consider incredibly lucky because uh, like my mother was a really young mom, like a teen mom. And we did grow up really, really poor. And the one thing she told me was try to get out of here and go to college. Like that's your ticket. And I actually did it and I was shocked, like absolutely blown away that that happened. And that's kind of like this. It's just like, I don't consider there's a lot of luck in my life, but when it's happened, it's been absolutely like changing. And I'm just very grateful for that. But yeah, a lot of people rejected this collection. <laughs> um, what was I gonna say? Oh, I well, just I wanna, wanna add. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Can I yeah, add? Go for it. They all said it was good. I just want to add that. They all said it was good, but they all said they didn't think that it would sell. And that by like not buying it, they weren't saying that it wasn't a good book. They were just saying they didn't see a market for these kinds of stories, which I know a lot of authors who are not white have heard, or like queer authors have also heard that. It's like, I don't think there's a market for this. But there is, and people will consume these stories, but you have to put them out there. Like, and I don't say that just about my stories. I say that about all the stories that get told, like, I don't think there's a market. There is, you are, you are creating no market by saying that thing. But if you present these things, they, they will go out. Like, anyway, I'm sorry. Soapbox off. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, when I was reading the book, I really could see it as a, um, some sort of television series. Do you have any feelings around it getting optioned for film or television? I would love to have it optioned. Um, that's actually one of the major criticisms I got from peers in uh, workshops when I was much younger was like, 
it reads too cinematic. And I was like, how is it possible to read too cinematic? Like, what do you see when you read? Because I, for one, envision it like a movie. And that's like, I, television and movies were a really big part of my childhood in addition to books. So uh, basically I was occupied. And um, I think that writing cinematically isn't, isn't a bad thing because I mean, that's how my brain works. And I assume that other people's brains, not everybody, they also work like that. Like when I set out to write this collection, I mean, I didn't set out to write like Descartes. I'm not here philosophizing about this. I'm not trying to deal in nebulous ideas. Like my writing is very much grounded in reality. And perhaps it's just like a coping mechanism or some version of dissociation, but I've always envisioned life as a sort of movie. It doesn't necessarily, makes sense. I mean, it's like that song from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. It doesn't make narrative sense, but you can still view it that way. And I mean, that's kind of how I've walked through life. It's like, there'll be a song on the radio and I'm like, if this were a music video, this is exactly what I would be doing right now. And like, I don't know, maybe that's just me being a huge nerd, but that's how I kind of approached writing this collection was like, this is how I see it in my mind. And that's how I'm going to describe it so that hopefully, the reader will be able to also inhabit this world with me because otherwise, what are we doing here? I just love that you reference Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That makes me so happy. <laughs> oh my God. It's Yay. a really good show. And if you're listening and haven't watched it, it's over so you can binge the whole thing on Netflix. Pitch. I'm sorry I actually, to insert myself in that, but <laughs> to the listeners, they're right. Go let's go watch, <laughs> enjoy the beautifulness of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and that's four seasons. Four seasons. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> it's so good. All right, back to the conversation. <laughs> um, actually, I watched. So when I initially watched that show, I watched it um, live, whatever you call. Yeah, you know, weekly. Yeah. And then um, just recently, like during the pandemic, I binged it, which I've never, you know, I'd never experienced it that way. I was like, oh, this is so good. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Um, Okay. So swerving a little bit back to um, the stories. (laughs) Let's talk about the stories again. Um, So aside from the attention to place that I noticed in the book, I was incredibly captivated by the attention and intimacy that are um, given to animals in the book, as well as the relationship between animals and the central character in each story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you sort of see that relationship and what your intention was behind it. Yeah, I mean, um, just in an abstract and not a personal way, like I think it is a stereotype that indigenous people were just like in touch with nature, which is like not true. Um, but I do think that there is a special relationship between people and their dogs, um, especially in the indigenous community I grew up with. We didn't have what are known as res dogs, like taking the name from, of the show takes it from that, which are just basically wild feral dogs that run around. Um, we didn't have that where I grew up, but everybody had a dog. And it was sort of just expected that like, oh, like you live in a house, you, you must have pets. And they're not really treated as pets. Um, it's just, I think if this were, 
30 years ago, it's like, oh yeah, that's my cat, that's my dog. But they're basically therapy animals without actually being trained. It's just that kind of comfort of having unconditional love, which uh, is very important to me. Like I'm definitely an animal person. I have a dog and recently we got a kitten specifically for the dog as a support kitten because we've turned into those people um, <laughs> who are just like, but he'll be lonely, he needs a friend. And so we got a cat. And I think the relationship with my, that my characters often have with their animals is very much of just like, this is the one thing you can rely on. And I feel that way about my own animals. Like people will break your heart over and over again. People will screw you over. And even the people you love, even if they don't intentionally do it, like they can hurt you and they can hurt deep, but the love of an animal, the love of like one of your pets, like they're never gonna screw you over and they would all, they will always be there for you as long as they're able. So that's, I think what has to do with the relationship with animals in the book is that they're not going to leave you. Like people will come and go, but your dog, He's there for you. He's got you. He's your ride or die. Like people can say that to you, but no, it's your dog. <laughs> I actually, um, I, I got divorced at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I have a five month old um, puppy and it has been, it's been the greatest. It's actually the first um, pet I've ever had like solely on my own. So it's been a very, which has been really exciting. Yeah. So I totally, totally yeah. agree with that. Um, I agree. The dog I have now is my first real, he's mine. And it's, it's a whole other world. Like I've had other animals that I've loved, but I've always shared them with someone or I wasn't around, but they were a baby, baby. Nope. This is my guy. This is my hand raised puppy. <laughs> like he's mine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, let's uh, can I get a time check? No. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, can we talk about cars <laughs> in the book? <laughs> we can. <laughs> um, was this intentional or it's just sort of what came out as you were writing the stories because that's, you know, part of what the world is about or is there some, some sort of bigger meaning behind it? Um, well, I want to say it was intentional, but I think it came about just as because that's such a part of like my own understanding of my own experiences, the experiences of people I know is everything has to do with that's how you get where you're going. And so it's a huge part of your life. And growing up, I knew many, many people, adults who took extreme pride in their cars. It could be the biggest junker, but it's got a Hemi, like that sort of thing where it's like the idea of that's a status symbol. And it doesn't have to be like a brand new, like Honda Civic, it's definitely not a Honda Civic. It's gonna be like a T-Bird or uh, an El Camino. Like it's these cars that are very much evocative of a certain era. And like symbolically, once I kind of had a couple of stories and realized like, oh shit, I'm focusing on cars a lot. Like there are a lot of details about this vehicle that I don't necessarily think I see a lot. And I think it has to do with the culture of Oklahoma. Like, I mean, even now, like 
it's going to end soon, but Oklahoma is still very much driven by oil. And a lot of the stories I heard growing up were about like the oil boom and the oil bust. And that deeply affected the culture in Oklahoma of those times. Like suddenly you have the oil boom and there's 500,000 men, mostly white, from other parts of the country that are suddenly in Oklahoma. And I mean, it's not unknown that like man camps like that, as they call them, they contribute to the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. They contribute to a rise in assaults, in crime, in petty theft, um, things like that, because it's literally just a bunch of really young dudes getting paid too well to do manual labor for three weeks on, one week off. And that creates kind of this bottleneck of testosterone. And I think cars are really a part of that. And it comes from, again, this reliance on like American oil and the idea that like, if you can afford a really sick ride, then that's your status symbol. You may not own your house. You may live in a trailer that is falling apart and is literally on cinder blocks, but you've got a Mustang and that's something. And I don't think that's that's unique to Oklahoma at all. I mean, where I live currently is a like low to moderate income neighborhood. And like a lot of the younger men, especially, it's they live with their mothers and their grandmothers or their girlfriends, but they've got a really, really nice ride. And that's a very specific status symbol of being able to afford that, of being able to maintain that. And I think that contributes to many of the themes in the story of you may not have a lot, but you've got something. And cars are really a way to show that off in a way that, I don't wanna say validates masculinity, but it contributes to the idea of masculinity. Um, especially a lot of the cars that I talk about in the book, like they're, it's not autobiographical at all, but I can specifically tie the models of the cars that are in the book to certain characters in my own life. Uh, whereas like, I know exactly who had a Bronco and exactly who had a Dodge Ram. We know who drove the El Camino. We know who drove the Silverbird, like that sort of thing. It's just like, it, it's connected to a very real sense of their identity those men and obviously in the book they're fictionalized 100 but for me it's just that was one of their defining characteristics and they they used it as that too it wasn't just like oh yeah he's a he truck it's like no 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 this is the man who owns the royal blue dodge ram like with the big tires and things like that like i think it's very much like a, at least those cars specifically were very regionally like used as identifiers of wealth and power. Yeah, it's actually you sounded like a commercial, like you sounded like a truck commercial when you're like, this is, but you know, I live in Houston. So obviously big oil town, big, big car city. Um yeah. requires you know, you cannot get around without a car. But I was thinking that um, you know, another thing is that there's so many car washing places here. <laughs> because it's like where you go and they like do everything they detail wow. and do everything for you like there's a number because people are just very fixated on also what their car you know how their car appears to to other yeah. people too yeah but they care more about their car than their house because other people are going to see their car like yeah yeah it's very yeah, exactly. much like a status thing I don't mean to sound like a commercial though divest from oil please no I know no like you're <laughs> 
I think that you're sort of parroting it, but it was just funny. Like oh, yeah. the donation was like, this is a big guy in a Dodge Ram with the big yeah. tires. Yeah. They really are though. I mean, it's just very much a thing. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for, for this book, but also for this conversation. I'm so I'm so excited about everybody else seeing the book and what 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 kind of response and momentum you get from it. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you for taking the time to talk to me. And thank you, Lance, for inviting both of us. And I'm just so excited for everyone to have a chance to read the book. And we'll see. And go to Skylight, buy some books safely. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I second that. I second all of that. And thank you both too. But before we go, I have a very important question for both of you. Um, it's super, super, super important. Uh, and the listeners, this is going to be the biggest part, I think, of this episode. What are your favorite songs from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? I have to ask and I have to know. I need to know this. This is important to me. I'll, I'll say mine. I'll say mine. So just to let you both know, it's Let's Generalize About Men is the song that I think changed my life. <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> That's definitely on my list for sure, but I'm terrible with titles. So I'm going to let Savannah go first. And I'm going to just, <laughs> you just do some light, light <laughs> Googling. Yeah. Um, okay. I would say that it's an early season one, but oh, face God. your fears. Yes. <laughs> is my gym jam. Like, oh I my mean, God. Paula. Paula is, is a singer, a singer first, a yes. performer first, a performer yes. first, and like, wow, a song. Yeah, that, Face Your Fears, and then what would be the runner-up? Um, uh, I'm going to be a downer. Uh, you ruin everything. You ruined, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. It's um, just so good, though. It's just like I cry every time. I'm, yeah, I'm singing just, along, I'm looking in the it, mirror, just like you, <laughs> sobbing, <laughs> just full um, on. Just ugh. well, I will say, Settle for Me is a yes. very important song yes. for me, given yes, yes, talking yes, yes, about yes. downers. Um, and also yes. just OG Greg, all the way, oh. <sighs> putting that oh, out there. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh my god, yes. Oh my god. I settle for me like what a song. Like in love. I that's true love. I don't know what it's about so that. It's so good. It's so good. Like just the lyrics, the dancing, the production of it too. Oh my god. That that I mean La La Land wishes. I didn't listen and I don't want to hear anything coming from me online about that. But the true La La Land is the song Settle for Me from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's 100 percent I will one. back you up. <laughs> Thank you, Savannah. Thank you. And you heard it here first. Me, Savannah, Addie's still deciding. Addie, well, Addie, are you on our side or are you on the and I'm joking again? You're not the same as right now. <laughs> this is something ridiculous. No, no, no. Thank you both. Thank you both. Listeners, go watch Crazy Ex Girl. Oh, wait, no, this is not a Crazy Ex Girlfriend podcast. Um, we can make it one. I mean, are, am I going to pivot now to full Crazy Ex Girlfriend talk? We come back next week and find out. Uh, no, thank you both. Thank you both so much. Savannah, thank you for your amazing book. Like, everyone, go out and pick up a copy. It is on sale right now at Skylight Books. It's called Rights. It's 
amazing. You'll see it right at the front of the store. So you have no excuse. And I will take no excuses from you not buying this book. And thank you, Addie, for being a great conversation partner. You just thank you. Just thank you. And thank you She's both for, I mean, there's so much good energy here. I love it. I love it. I love mm-hmm. it. And, but sadly we have to go. So to all my beautiful listeners, I hope you have a great rest of your day and, you know, do something nice for yourself. Thank you so much. Or, you know, tweet about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and tag Skylight. <laughs> yes, tweet, tag Skylight and every ta- Crazy Ex-Girlfriend post, please, please, please. I want to know. Send me your favorite songs. All right. <laughs> Have a good day. Bye.